Croesus learnt then that such at this time was the plight of the Athenians. The Lacedaemonians, as he had heard, also known as the Spartans, had escaped from great calamities, and had by this time got the upper hand of the men of Tegea in their war. For in kingship of Leon and Hegescles at Sparta, the Lacedaemonians were victorious in their other wars, but against Tegea alone they met with no success. And not only so, but before this they were the worst governed of well-nigh all the Greeks, having little intercourse amongst themselves or with strangers. Thus then they changed their laws for the better. Lycurgus, a, no <laughs> a notable Spartan, visited the oracle at Delphi, and when he entered the temple hall, straightway the priestess gave him this response. Dear to Zeus, thou hast come to my well-stored temple, Lycurgus. Dear to Zeus, and all who dwell in the courts of Olympus, art thou a man or a god? Tis a god I deem thee, Lycurgus. Some say, moreover, that the priestess declared him the whole governance of Sparta, which is now established. But the Lacedaemonians themselves relate that it was from Crete that Lycurgus brought these changes he being then guardian of Leobates, his nephew, king of Sparta. As soon as he became guardian, he changed all the laws of the country and was careful that none should transgress his ordinances. And afterwards, it was Lycurgus who established all that related to war. The sworn companies, the bands of 30, the common meals, and besides these, the ephors and the council of elders. So they changed their bad laws for good ones. And when Lycurgus died... They built him a shrine and now greatly revere him. Then, since their land was good and their men were many, very soon they began to flourish and prosper. Nor were they satisfied to remain at peace, but being assured that they were stronger than the Arcadians, they acquired of the oracle at Delphi, with their minds set on the whole of Arcadia. The Pythian priestess gave them this reply, Askest Arcadia from me, tis a boon too great for the giving. Many Arcadians are there, stout heroes, eaters of acorns. These shall hinder thee sore. It is not that I begrudge thee. Lands to gain I shall give thee, to smite with feet in the dancing. Also the fertile plain with line I'll give thee to measure. When this was brought back to the ears of the Lacedaemonians, they let the rest of the Arcadians be, and marched against the men of Tegea, carrying fetters with them. For they trusted in the quibbling oracle, and thought they would enslave the Tegeans, but they were worsted in the encounter. And those of them who were taken captive were made to till the Tegean plain, wearing the fetters which they themselves had brought, and measuring the land with a line. These fetters, in which they were bound, were still in my time kept safe at Tegea, where they were hung up around the temple of Athena Lea. In the former war, then, the Lacedaemonians were unceasingly defeated in their contest with Tegea, but in the time of Croesus, in the kingship of Anazandrides and Ariston at Sparta, the Spartans now had gained the upper hand, and this is how it came about. Being always worsted by the Tegeate, they sent inquirers to Delphi and asked what god they should propitiate so as to gain the mastery over Tegea in war. The Pythian priestess declared that they must bring home the bones of Orestes, son of Agamemnon. Being unable to discover Orestes' tomb, they sent their messengers again to the god to ask the, the, to ask the place where Orestes lay. And the priestess said in answer to their question, There is a place, Tegi, in the level plain of Arcadia, whereby stark stress-driven twain winds are ever a-blowing. 
Shock makes answer to shock, and anguish is laid upon anguish. There in the nourishing earth, Agamemnon's son lays buried. Bring him, and so thou shalt be the lord of thy land of foemen. When the Lacedaemonians heard this too, they were no nearer finding what they sought, though they made search everywhere, till at last Lycus, who was one of the Spartans who are called benefactors, discovered it. These benefactors are the Spartan citizens who pass out of the ranks of the knights, the five oldest in each year. For the year in which they pass out from the knights, they are sent on diverse errands by the Spartan state and misused all dispatch. Lycus then, one of these men, by good luck and cleverness, found the tomb of Tegea. At that time, there was free intercourse with Tegea, so entering a smithy, he watched the forging of iron and marveled at the work he saw. When the smith perceived that he was much astonished, he ceased from working and said, Laconian, you wonder at the working of iron, but had you seen what I saw, you would need to have something to marvel at. For I was making a well in the courtyard, when in my digging I chanced upon a coffin seven cubits long, as I could not believe that there had ever been men taller than those of our time. I opened the coffin and found within it the corpse as long as itself. I measured it and buried it in the earth again. So the smith told what he had seen, like as marked what he said, and argued from the oracle that this must be Orestes, reasoning that the smith's two bellows, which he saw were the winds, the anvil and the hammer and the shock and the countershock and the forged iron, the anguish upon anguish, what led him to so guess was that the discovery of iron had been to men's hurt. Thus he reasoned, and returning to Sparta told all the matter to the Lacedaemonians. They made a pretense of bringing a charge against him and banishing him. So he went to Tegea, where he was told, or where he told the smith of his misfortune and tried to hire the courtyard from him. The smith would not consent, but at last Lycus over-persuaded him, and taking up his abode there, opened the tomb and collected the bones and went away with him to Sparta. Ever after this time, the Lacedaemonians got much the better of the men of Tegea in all their battles, and they'd already subdued the greater part of the Peloponnesus. Croesus then, being made aware of all this, sent messengers to Sparta with gifts to ask an alliance in words with which he charged them. They came and said, Croesus, king of Lydia and other nations, has sent us with this message. Lacedaemonians, that God has declared that I should make the Greek my friend. Now, therefore, as I learn that you are the leaders of Hellas, I do so invite you as the oracle bids. I would fain be your friend and ally without deceit or guile. Thus Croesus proposed by the mouth of his messengers, and the Lacedaemonians, who had already heard of the oracle given to Croesus, welcomed the coming of the Lydians, and swore to be his friends and allies. And indeed, they were bound by certain benefits, which they had received before, which they had before received from the king. For the Lacedaemonians had sent to Sardis to buy gold, with intent to use it for the statue of Apollo, which now stands on Thornax in Laconia. And Croesus, when they would buy it, made a free gift of it to them. For this cause, and because he'd chosen them as friends before all other Greeks, the Lacedaemonians accepted the alliance, so they declared themselves ready to serve him when he should require. And moreover, they made a bowl of bronze, graven outside round the rim with figures, and large enough to hold 2,700 gallons, and brought it with the intent to make a gift of requital to Croesus. This bowl never came to Sardis, and for these two reasons are given, and for this two reasons are given, the Lacedaemonians say that when the bowl was near Samos on its way to Sardis, the Samians descended upon them in warships and carried it off. But the Samians themselves say that the Lacedaemonians, who were bringing the bowl, being too late, and learning that Sardis and Croesus were taken, sold it in Samos to certain private men, who set it up in the temple of Hyr, 
And it may be that the sellers of the bull, when they returned to Sparta, said that they'd been robbed of it by the Samians. Such are the tales about the bull. Croesus, mistaking the meaning of the oracle, invaded Cappadocia, thinking to destroy Cyrus and the Persian power. But while he was preparing to march against the Persians, a certain Lydian, who was already held to be a wise man, from the advice which Shao gave one great renown among the Lydians, thus counseled him, his name was Sardanus, O king, you are making ready to march against men who wear breeches of leather, and their other garments of the same, and whose fare is not what they desire, but what they have. For their land is stony. Further, they use no wine, but are water drinkers. Nor do they have figs to eat, nor aught else that is good. Now if you conquer them, of what will you deprive them, seeing that they have nothing? But if, on the other hand, you are conquered, then see how many good things you'll lose. For once they've tasted of our blessings, they will cling so close to them that nothing will thrust them away. For myself, then, I thank the gods that they do not put it in their hearts of the Persians to march against the Lydians. Thus spoke Sandenis. For the Persians, before they subdued the Lydians, had no luxury and no comforts. But he did not move Croesus. Now the Cappadocians are called by the Greeks Syrians. And these Syrians, before the Persian rule, were subjects of the Medes, and at this time of Cyrus. For the boundary of the Median and Lydian empires was the river Halys, which flows from the Armenian mountains first through Cilicia, and afterwards between the Matieni, the Matieni on the right and the Phrygians on the other hand. Then passing these and flowing still northwards, it separates the Cappadocian Syrians on the right from the Paphlagonians on the left. Thus the Halys River cuts off well-nigh the whole of the lower part of Asia, from the Cyprian to the Euxine Sea. Here is the narrowest neck of all this land. The length of the journey across is five days for a man going unburdened. The reasons of Croesus's expedition against Cappadocia were these. He desired to gain territory in addition to his own share, and, these were the chief causes, he trusted the oracle and wished to avenge Astyages on Cyrus. For Cyrus, son of Cambyses, had subdued Astyages and held him in subjugation. Now Astyages, king of Medea, son of Caesars, was Croesus's brother-in-law, and this is how he came to be so. A tribe of wandering Scythians separated itself from the rest and escaped into Median territory. This was then ruled by Caesars, son of Phraertes, son of Diocese. Caesars at first treated the Scythians kindly, as being suppliants for his mercy and he held them in high regard. He entrusted boys to their charge to be taught their language in the craft of archery. As time went on, it chanced that the Scythians, who were wont to go hunting and ever to bring something back, once had taken nothing, and when they returned empty-handed, Cyazars, being as hereby appeared prone to anger, treated them very roughly and despitefully. The Scythians, deeming themselves wronged by the usage they had from Cyazars, plotted to take one of the boys who were their pupils and cut him into pieces. Then, dressing the flesh as if they were wont to dress the animals which they killed, to bring and give it to Cyazars, as if it were the spoils of the chase. And after that, to make their way with all speed to Aleides, son of Sidiades, at Sardis. All this they did. Cyazars and the guests who feasted with him ate of the boy's flesh. And the Scythians, having done as they planned, fled to Aleides for protection. After this, seeing that Aleides would not give up the Scythians to Cyazars at his demand, there was a war between the Lydians and the Medes for five years. 
each won many victories over the other, and once they fought a battle by night. They were still warring with equal success when it chanced at an encounter which happened during the sixth year, that during the battle the day was suddenly turned to night. Thales of Miletus had foretold this loss of daylight to the Ionians, fixing it within the year in which it was uh, to indeed happen. So when the Lydians and the Medes saw the day turning to night, they ceased from fighting, and both were the more zealous to make peace. Those who reconciled them were Senesus the Cilician and Labinitus the Babylonian. They it was who brought it about that there should be a sworn agreement and an exchange of wedlock between them. They judged that Eleides should give his daughter Aryanus to Astyages, son of Cyazars, for without a strong bond, agreements will not keep their strength. These nations make sworn compacts, as do the Greeks. Moreover, they cut the skin of their arms and lick each other's blood. This Astyages, then, was Cyrus's mother's father, and was by him subdued and held subject, for the reason which I shall presently declare. Having this cause of quarrel with Cyrus, Croesus sent to ask the oracles if he should march against the Persians, and when a quibbling answer came, he thought it to be favorable to him, and so led his army to the Persian territory. When he came to the river Halys, he transported his army across it, by the bridges as I hold, which were then there. But the general belief of the Greeks is that the army was carried across by Thales of Miletus. This is the story, as the bridges aforesaid did not yet then exist. Croesus knew not how his army should pass the river. Then Thales, being in the encampment, made the river, which flowed on the left hand, flow also on the right of the army in the following way. Starting from a point on the river higher up than the camp, he dug a deep semicircular trench so that the, so that the stream, turned from its ancient course, should flow in the trench to the rear of the camp, and again passing it should issue into its former bed, so that as soon as the river was thus divided into two, both channels could be forded. Some even say that the ancient channel was altogether dried up, but I do not believe this. For how then did they pass the river when they were returning? Croesus, then passing over with his army, came to the part of Cappadocia called Pateria, as the strongest part of this country and lies nearest to the city of Sinope upon the Euxine Sea, where he encamped and laid waste to the farms of the Syrians. And he took and enslaved the city of the Paterians, and took also all the places about it and drove the Syrians from their homes, though they had done him no harm. Cyrus, mustering his army and gathering to him all those who dwelt upon his way, went to meet Croesus. But, be but before beginning his march, he sent heralds to the Ionians to try and draw them away from Croesus. The Ionians would not be persuaded. But when Cyrus had come and had camped face to face with Croesus, the armies made trial of each other's strength with might and main in the Batarian country. The battle was stubborn, many on both sides fell, and when they were parted at nightfall, neither had the advantage. With such fortune did the two armies contend. Croesus was not content with the number of his force, for his army, which had fought, was by far smaller than that of Cyrus. Therefore, seeing that on the day after the battle Cyrus essayed no second attack, he marched away to Sardis, intending to invite help from the Egyptians in fulfillment of their pledge. For before making an alliance with the Lacedaemonians, he had made also one with Amasis, king of Egypt, and to send for the Babylonians also, for with these two he had made an alliance, Labinatus being at this time their sovereign, and to summon the Lacedaemonians to join him at a fixed time. It was in his mind to muster all these forces and assemble his own army, then to wait till the winter was over and march against the Persians at the beginning of spring. With such intent, as soon as he returned to Sardis, he sent heralds to all his allies, summoning them to assemble at Sardis in five months' time. 
And as for the soldiers whom he had with him, who'd fought with the Persians, all of them who were not of his nation he disbanded, never thinking that after so equal an issue of the contest, Cyrus would march against Sardis. Thus Croesus reasoned. Meantime it chanced that snakes began to swarm in the outer part of the city. And when they appeared, the horses would ever leave their accustomed pasture and devour them. When Croesus saw this, he thought it to be a portent, and so it was. Forthwith, he sent, the, he sent to the abodes of the Telmassian interpreters to inquire concerning it. But though his messengers came and learnt from the Telmassians what the portent should signify, they could never bring back word to Croesus, for he was, he was a prisoner before they could make their voyage back to Sardis. Howbeit, this was the judgment of the Telmassians, that Croesus must expect a foreign army to attack his country, and that when it came it would subdue the dwellers in the land. For the snake, they said, was the child of the earth, but the horse was a foe and a foreigner. Such was the answer which the Telmassians gave Croesus, knowing as yet nothing of the fate of Sardis and the king himself. But when they gave it, Croesus was already taken. When Croesus marched away after the battle in the Batarian country, Cyrus, learning that Croesus had gone with intent to disband his army, took counsel and perceived thereby that it was his business to march with all speed against Sardis, before the power of the Lydians could again be assembled. So he resolved, and he did so speedily. He marched his army into Lydia, and so himself came to bring the news of it to Croesus. All had turned out contrariwise to Croesus's expectation, and he was in a great quandary. Nevertheless, he led out the Lydians to battle. Now at this time, there was no nation in Asia more valiant or warlike than the Lydian. It was their custom to fight on horseback, carrying long spears, and they were skilled in the management of horses. So the armies met in the plain, wide and bare, which is before the city of Sardis. The Hylas and other rivers flow across it and rush violently together into the greatest of them, which is called Hermas. This flows from the mountain sacred to the mother Dindimim and issues into the sea near the city of Phocaea. Here, when Cyrus saw the Lydians arraying their battle, he was afraid of their horse, and therefore did, as I will show, by the counsel of one Harpagus, a Mede. Assembling all the camels that followed his army bearing food and baggage, he took off their burdens and set men upon them, equipped like cavalrymen. Having so equipped them, he ordered them to advance before his army against Croesus's horse. He charged the infantry to follow the camels, and set all his horse behind the infantry. When they were all arrayed, he commanded them to kill all other Lydians who came in their way, and spare none, but not to kill Croesus himself, even if he should defend himself against capture. Such was his command. The reason of his posting the camels to face the cavalry was this. Horses fear camels, can endure neither the sight nor the smell of them. This, then, was the intent of his device, that Croesus's cavalry, on which the Lydian relied for the winning of some glory, might be of no use. So when the battle was joined, as soon as the horses smelt and saw the camels, they turned to flight, and all Croesus's hope was lost. Nevertheless, the Lydians were no cowards. When they saw what was happening, they leapt from their horses and fought the Persians on foot. Many of both armies fell. At length the Lydians were routed, and driven within their city wall, where they were besieged by the Persians. <laughs>